0: I'm Ava Hartling, welcome back to The Brand is Female. This week, I'm very excited to introduce my guest, Elise Lunen. She's host of the podcast, Pulling the Thread, the best-selling author of On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins, and The Price Women Paid to Be Good. She's also former chief content officer for Goop. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Women in Enterprise. TD helps women in business achieve success and growth through their educational workshops, financing, and mentorship programs. Visit thebrandisfemale.com podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help. Elise Lunen has co-written 12 books, five of which were New York Times bestsellers. She was chief content officer of Goop, she co-hosted the Goop podcast and the Goop Lab on Netflix. Before that, she was the editorial project's director of Condé Nast Traveler. In her latest book, On Our Best Behavior, she explores the ancient rules women unwittingly follow in order to be considered good, revealing how the seven deadly sins still control and distort our lives, and inspiring us to reach a more balanced, spiritually complete way to live. In this conversation today, we talk about Elise's professional journey, which led her to discovering exactly what she wanted to be doing and how she connected with her own voice in the process. We also talk about what leads women to feel like they're rarely good enough. Here is our chat. Elise, it's such a pleasure and an honor having you on The Brand Female today. Thank you so much for making time. Thanks for having me. And it's especially an honor for me because you were a huge inspiration when I launched the Brandy's Female podcast about four years ago. Um, I was a big fan of the Goop podcast at the time which you were hosting. Um, So it's really fun having you as a guest today. Um, I want to go back in time. This is usually how I start these conversations. And I'm very curious to know, growing up, what kind of career were you envisioning for yourself? What kind of, you know, Mm. job, professional life were you dreaming of at that time?
1: Well, I have always been a big reader. That was sort of, that's been probably the primary through line in my life. I grew up just reading all the time, spending a lot of time at the library, which my mom used as a a community babysitter in some ways. Um, and so I always wanted to be close to words. I also had a fascination with magazines. It was like, I growing up in rural Montana, I, you know, there was, it was like, ah, there was this whole world outside of our small town that was fascinating to me. And so I think that I wanted to be adjacent to culture, not necessarily Mm -hmm. creating the culture, but I think I saw myself as someone who really wanted to be describing what I saw.
0: Mm -hmm. Interesting. And did you have role models around you who was kind of a source of inspiration as you, you know, you chose what to study in school, what path to take? Was there, was there somebody that was kind of that role model?
1: Yeah, oh, it's interesting. I mean, I had some amazing teachers when I was young, but no one sort of stands out in Montana as, like, here's the person whose career I'm going to emulate. A man who owned the local bookstore that we spend a lot of time mm. at. He was instrumental in um, telling my mom about this boarding school that had this scholarship for two kids from Montana. Mm. And he really felt like my older brother. Um, should go there. And mm-hmm. my, my older brother, I did end up going there. And in many ways, like, yes, my brother and I are similar, um, for many reasons, but I've also sort of, he's a book editor. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. we were a little under two years apart, but in some ways are quite twin like in that right. way. So I think he also, I just sort of did what Ben did. He went mm. first and I followed him with some variation. <laughs>
0: Interesting. Yeah. And tell me about where, you know, where did that lead you? What kind of studies did you pursue? Was it, was it always kind of literature? You kind of had that idea of being a writer?
1: Yeah. I mean, I never thought I, and I still struggle, even though I am officially a writer by trade, I still don't think of myself as a writer. I have Mm -hmm. a block about it. I think because I venerate that, I venerate the art, Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I'm not a novel. All the things. I'm very mm-hmm. good at telling you everything that I am not. So I um, never really pursued creative writing. And I, mm-hmm. it's funny, now I read almost exclusively nonfiction for my job. And it's been that way for almost a decade. But I used to exclusively read fiction and mm-hmm. magazines. And I had varied academic interests. I was really good at math, but primarily mm-hmm. algebra, which is really verbal math. And... Right. I, when I went to um, boarding school and then college, I studied, so it was definitely less steam. I am not, mm-hmm. uh, my dad's a doctor and I love sort of the healing arts, but I more from the intuitive angle than from the organic chemistry angle. Mm-hmm. So I was an English and fine arts major in college and I could have been a history, you know, lots of simultaneous interests, but mostly Yes, I've had an amazing education. I never went back to school for a master's or a PhD or anything like that. But it's been primarily uh, like I'm a big self-learner, self-teacher, mm-hmm. like big reader. So maybe that's why I started reading nonfiction too, was like a desire to mm-hmm. continually Continue learn. Continue learning mm-hmm. yeah. without going back to school to do it.
0: Yeah the first part of your career was really spent in in publishing how did that feel at the time and it's interesting because you know you were somebody who read a lot that was kind of the common thread for you know that first chapter of, of your life now you've come full circle but did you feel at that time that you were expressing you know what Elise had to say what was that mm. was it fulfilling in in that sense
1: in some ways it was it was just really fun. I was a magazine editor at Condé Nast, like in the heyday, you know, mm-hmm. in the Devil yeah. Wears Prada, age. like fun times. Um, I'm sure the previous decades were fun as well because you were really creating culture. Like that mm-hmm. was, it was such a, so essential. And it's funny to think about what we've lived through in terms of the brand ecosystem and the press and media ecosystem and how dramatically it has changed, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it used to be sort of the primary, if not the only mechanism for press and Mm -hmm, media. And mm -hmm. it was a one-way conversation. It was, which is very convenient when you're the one who's on the side that's pushing out information. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's funny to think about just like being right at the cusp of when I worked at Lucky Magazine, which is now defunct, but it was at the time the fastest growing magazine in Kind of ass history. And it was game changer. Mm-hmm. It was essentially a blog and a magazine. Mm-hmm. Um I and, was a
0: big lucky fan. <laughs> yeah.
1: It was amazing, focusing on real women and yeah. small boutiques and independent labels and designers, like stuff that just hadn't happened
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and more affordable fashion, etc. But and one of my first jobs was covering the internet, which sounds mm. hilarious, but like <laughs> stores that were sort of slowly getting online with like a handful of things. Um, I, I, some of the big style bloggers, I was the person who gave them their very first press. Mm. Um, it's not funny. It's it's interesting to think about where we are, and now those guys are old guard and have been mm-hmm. sort of in some some ways usurped or unseated by social media and like we just watch Mm -hmm. it continually fracture in a way that's quite fascinating but just means there's no single source Mm -hmm. anymore it's quite amazing
0: yeah Yeah. in it's interesting because you know Magazine publishing, especially at that time and in, in the glory days, um, was one of the only media really where there was such a strong voice and a space for women. Uh, you know, traditional media, broadcast media was still, I mean, it's still to this day. We see more, uh, more men than women, uh, especially as opinion leaders and, and, and thought leaders. Um, but magazines where, you know, you could write about a feminist topic and, I think for a lot of young women growing up, it was kind of that space where it was safe to talk about women's issues and women's rights and Mm -hmm. any aspect of women's lives. Um, And you were surrounded by strong women, right? It's one of the categories in publishing where you have a lot of women at the helm of publications making decisions. Did it feel empowering? Did it feel like, you know, these women were, uh, again, maybe a source of inspiration for you?
1: Yes and no. you know, as always it's it's a complex it's a complex stew. And so some magazines were sort of disruptive and um, centering women's voices mm-hmm. told through the lens of female writers and editors. and there's certainly a lot of that. And then others it's it's sort of this old guard media again, going back to this like single one-way conversation, a little dictatorial Mm -hmm. and sometimes, you know, one of those market research situations where you get, and I think that's what made, made Lucky so disruptive. Even though Mm -hmm. we were writing about shopping, the women there were brilliant and incredible Mm -hmm. writers. It's actually very hard to write a bag guide, you know, of single sentences, about 400 handbags where you're not repeating words or phrases it's like it's actually an amazing puzzle as a writer um, to make it revelatory and fun and interesting um but, at the time, a lot of, a lot of that core media was, okay, so our reader is a mom of 3.2 women, um, or there's maybe three, and she lives in Michigan and she lives in Atlanta. And it's this sort of objectification of Mm -hmm. women and then the marketing to them Mm -hmm. instead of starting necessarily from that place of, which is where Lucky started, which is, is this resonant for me? Is this resonant for my friends? Can Mm -hmm. I therefore assume that it will be resonant for Friends of Friends, which was really how that magazine, and I think that was, that was, again, when you think about where we are with media, it was pointing the direction towards where it was going, which is sort of a self-referential, I'm not alone here, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Rather than old school media, which had started with like, let's just, we're going to talk to her. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that sort of projection rather than it coming out of The people who are working on staff. So Hmm. I think it was Hmm. a mixed bag, and publishing was sort of famously catty and mean girly. And it was like, I remember talking to someone who was at the New Yorker at the time, because when I first got to Lucky, I was like, oh, I need this. I can't work at a magazine about shopping. It ended up being one of the greatest educations of my life, but Mm -hmm. I had this immediate, like intellectually snobby response of like, I need to be at the vanity fair. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I needed to be exactly where I was. And, um, but I remember talking to a writer there a little bit older than I was, a woman. And I was like, How are we? This is so, hard. I mean, like, we made, I made more because I was a freelance contractor. And so, uh, you know, et cetera. Like, it made it so that I could kind of survive, but mm-hmm. barely. But I was like, How does this work? And she was like, Oh, well, they think we live on a, you know, in a woman's dorm on the Upper East Side. But right. so much of that culture was also, and it's still a problem in media because it's New York specifically, where then you get a certain class of people mm-hmm. too. It sort of, it was pushing people out who couldn't afford to make $22,000 a year. I mean, yeah. this is 20 years ago, but still, yeah. that's mm-hmm. not, it's not that bad. It probably isn't much better.
0: Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm you and then fast forward a little bit and I, I don't want to minimize your experience and your time spent in publishing. You did publish a few books and it's interesting when we read your profile because, you know, you're you're a published author. Mm-hmm. Um, those first books, I believe you were a ghostwriter for, so it mm-hmm. wasn't your name, you know, on the cover as the author. Mm-hmm. How, how was that chapter of your life and how was that experience and is it hard writing for somebody else, or maybe it's easier not having our name as the author of a book?
1: Um, it's definitely easier in many ways. It's more mm-hmm. frustrating in some. But yeah, in my 20s, because I needed to make money, extra money, I couldn't afford to be a magazine editor alone, I started ghostwriting and, and co-writing, depending Um But I really like ghostwriting, and I Mm -hmm. like the anonymity of it, not because it comes from a place of, like, wanting to distance myself. I've written for some really amazing people, Mm -hmm. but because when you are just ghosting, you uh, are—there's just no ego in it, and Mm -hmm. you are— really working in service of the book and in service of the writer and their material, whether Mm -hmm. it's a story of their lives or their, how they coach business leaders, you know, whatever it is. Um, And then you sort of can function as a writer editor who is, um, you know, it's very hard to write a book. It's a lot of words to structure into a coherent, and compelling argument and experience for a reader. I mean, we've all had those experiences where you're like, this really could have been an article or, um, I, or like, there's so much stuff here. I have no idea what's happening. Right. Mm -hmm. Where it's like every chapter is like a junk drawer for anecdotes and data and experiences. So writing a good book that actually brings people somewhere and deserves to be a book and deserves money is hard, but it's much easier um, and I will say it's hard even having done it now 12 times with other people and once for myself, mm-hmm. um, cause a lot of times, particularly with nonfiction, people will say like, I feel bad. I, you know, I was an English major. I should be able to write my own book. It's like, no, you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. really difficult It's thing. a tough
0: process. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's really hard to do it by yourself, particularly mm-hmm. if you're writing about anything personal, um, because it's a, there. you know. It's, it's therapeutic. And mm-hmm. every time, almost invariably, whenever I work with someone on a book, I'd say at least 50% of the time, something significant happens. And mm. it's like they decide to get divorced, someone wow. dies, like mm. big, big stuff. Like mm. I find myself revising books because of what's come to pass in people's lives because it's a very intensive experience where you're mm. really digging into your life. That's
0: interesting because it makes me think of what a lot of women entrepreneurs talk about when they start a business mm-hmm. and a lot of their advice is often make sure you start therapy as the same time as you start a business because it will make all those changes happen in your life.
1: Wow. It's, yeah, I'm sure it's very equivalent actually mm. thinking about it. Yeah, it's big.
0: And you... From there, spent time at Goop, um, yeah. and in you were in charge of all content as as chief content officer, and that seems like an exciting time as well because you know the rise of Goop and the wellness space and mm-hmm. uh, all of the. Uh, just the conversations that the platform was able to bring forward conversations we weren't having about health about wellness mental health women's sexual lives and and so forth um curious to hear you about that time and also was it hard putting all of these new ideas into you know into the ecosystem into culture knowing that there were also a lot of critics of the platform and there, there still are today
1: yeah, no, it was a really it was really fun and incredibly creative. and it's interesting now to think about where it what it is. and by it, I mean sort of this idea of wellness, which is this mm-hmm. massive nebulous industry. and it's really hard. I think now we're at a point where it's like that needs to fracture and reorganize because some of these things are not the same. They're like not of a set if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. um where um, And like anything where you can sort of, it can start to tip over, right? Where you're like, whoa, that's not, I don't know if that's wellness. That seems extreme, Mm. Brian Johnson or whatever your name is. Like the people who are like circulating their blood and aging backwards and um, it's wild. And it's interesting to see sort of the commercialization and the commodification Mm. of of the industry, which was Mm. initially about information and these essential tenets sort of reminding us of what we all know, but sometimes forget. Mm -hmm. Move your body, sleep, Mm -hmm. breathe, drink more water than you want, um, eat whole foods, and then the way that it becomes sort of sliced and diced uh, to the point where it becomes like so almost impenetrable. So, Mm -hmm. but at that time, you know, wellness at its core back in the day was um, a conversation primarily for women, by Mm -hmm. women. There were obviously men in this space, but it was primarily a feminine, a movement of the feminine saying that we had been gaslit by, and my dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse. I love Western medicine and Mm -hmm. I take multiple prescription drugs for things like migraines. Like I am Mm -hmm. not a binary person and never have been. Right, But- it was easy to say, particularly at that moment of time, I think things have gotten so much better. But um, no, this is not in my head. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: I'm having real symptoms and there's something wrong. And I am using, yes, my intuition, but just my ability to feel myself to say, I'm not doing well and you're telling me I'm hysterical. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so wellness was really sort of, this is at a time when, Fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, like mm-hmm. any number of autoimmune diseases, for one example, were dismissed as fake. Right. And so wellness was a way of speaking into existence what was present for women, but had not been diagnosed. Mm-hmm. So, writing things like about PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, mm-hmm. and having legions of women write back and say, Oh my God, this, you are describing, done in concert, you know, with an OBGYN, but who's saying like, this is, this is me. You are Mm -hmm. describing me. I've never been able to get a diagnosis. My doctor says, I'm fine. I know that I have PCOS. So that's one example or postnatal depletion, which is now an entire industry and is supported around Mm. the world as part of culture, but in America- particular it's like no paid family leave no one cares about the mom we all become extremely run down and depleted because babies are parasites Mm -hmm. and the compounding Mm -hmm. impact of that in our lives is very real Mm -hmm. and so just naming these things was revolutionary Mm -hmm. and I mean there's always it's like uh, I can't remember the famous quote but it's like you say something and it's revolutionary and incendiary and then it's accepted as self-evident and however many years later. So Mm -hmm. we were definitely at the, on the tip of sort of things that weren't, we weren't creating, but we're mainstreaming these ideas Mm -hmm. that now are like, yeah, no, of course, like, duh. Um, But that was part of it. And it, it was fun because it felt like, um, we were moving culture, and yeah. these things that now we take as self-evident or mainstream at the time were scandalous, yeah, absolutely and it seems like
0: you at least from a, a listener's perspective, it seemed like you really enjoy the podcast and and mm-hmm. and the process behind it and you had amazing guests over the years uh, and again, I think a lot of those conversations are extremely re- relevant, but as you just brought up, some ideas that are are now mainstream, you know, were first introduced on a, on a good podcast episode. Yeah. Um, did it feel like you were, and it, it was very much your voice literally and figuratively, did it feel like you were finding your voice and kind of expressing, you know, your own, you, the, the things you had to say a little bit more by that point?
1: Yeah, it was an amazing sort of coming out for me. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, when we launched it, I just, I assumed I would be like, oh, her again. Like, I don't want her, you know, I want the main event, which I completely (laughs) understand, but it was so affirming. There are certainly Mm -hmm. people who just wanted the main event, but, um, but it was incredibly rewarding. And yes, like I had worked primarily at magazines without bylines, Mm ghost writing, we didn't have, uh, bylines at Goop. Mm -hmm. And so to, this was my, I don't think anyone knew that I was even working there unless they went right. on my, you know, LinkedIn. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was, it was more anonymous in that sense. It was more anonymous, which kind of, which I liked and it it made it cool and sort of like interesting, but, um, but yeah, the podcast was my coming out and it was so fun As Mm -hmm. for all the reasons you said, not that we didn't have access to all these incredible minds in our content. They were the people that we were already interviewing, but to actually audio, as you know, is very, um, it's very powerful Mm -hmm. and warm and it gives people an opportunity. Yeah, it's very intimate, gives people an opportunity to really elaborate and explain Mm -hmm. their thinking and their work. And it's unedited essentially and, um, yeah, and I think for a lot of people it gave them an op who might've been sort of reluctant about the brand primarily based on the way that the media loved to, uh, make it a whole thing that yeah. kind of wasn't, mm-hmm. but I think it gave them an opportunity to give it a chance and mm-hmm. to say, oh, actually, these are the questions we would ask. This is completely sane and reasonable and there's nothing incendiary here like this is all making a lot of sense um so it was really fun that was really fun Mm. and obviously I have a podcast now because it's my favorite medium I love writing books and I love hosting a podcast
0: This season of The brenni's is Female is made possible with the support of TD Women in Enterprise, and they're about confidently building you. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. It takes sound advice, puts guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaborative approach. TD can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship, and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way, so we can all share experiences and learn from each other. Other. TD Women in Enterprise has banking specialists who are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. And I've heard you give a few interviews where you've mentioned that at some point, and it, it sounds like there, were, there was obviously a reflection uh, behind it, but you realized that what you really enjoyed doing was writing books, hosting podcasts, um, which you set out to do and you left Goop. Mm-hmm. Um, how was that decision? What was that process like? You know, how how long did it take for you to come to that realization?
1: Yeah. I mean, it just, it was just time and mm-hmm. partly because, you know, needs shift always. And anyone who's listening, who has a business understands that like you, what got you there isn't going to necessarily get you there and, yeah. or what got you yeah. here. So, um, and business is business and businesses, you know, goop is, uh, beauty and, and wellness, but like, I'd say beauty through the lens of wellness company, that's, you know, a business. Mm-hmm. And I want to write about, uh, theology, you know, right. like it's not always, <laughs> it, it's not. I mean, that, that, just, that
0: can, you can sell things by yeah. speaking of theology as, as sure, well.
1: But. <laughs> sure. But, um, but yeah, that's, it's just not, uh, you know, everyone mm-hmm. needs to be rowing in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think part of it too, and the podcast was part of it, but part of it was sort of like recognizing what I want. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and saying like, I need to honor this and mm-hmm. what I want is content and mm-hmm. writing books. And so that's what I should go and do. Mm. And, you know, the company is in great shape. It was in great shape. It's like, it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, an amazing team and. And you, that,
0: and you helped built it, you know, yeah, when, it, when it was yeah. first coming out.
1: Exactly. And I feel like any manager um, of people, the primary thing I'm always thinking about is how do I replace myself? Like, how mm-hmm, do you mm-hmm. grow your team so that you are essentially no longer necessary, which I know yeah. sounds scary, but it's liberating. Cause then you're like, yeah. well, I'll go plant another field. Yeah,
0: exactly. And that led you to write a book on our best behavior, which I'm reading through almost then. Um, it's a fantastic work. I think women everywhere need to read this book. But it's interesting because you wrote a book that dismantles and analyzes why women are so limited, I think, you know. I want I want to draw a link or establish a link with something you said earlier because you said I'm better at telling you all the things that I'm not than the things mm-hmm. I, I am. Um, and I think that is true for a lot of women. Uh, I interview a lot of women entrepreneurs on this show, women who have built amazing businesses, who have done fantastic things as business leaders. And, you know, whether we call it imposter syndrome or we just call it self-doubt, every woman is plagued with some version of... Self-doubt, or of limiting beliefs, or fears that affect the way we present ourselves to the world, the way we speak to ourselves internally. And it often limits what we believe we can accomplish when really, you know, sky, sky should be the limit. Um, So it seems you found your own voice and you wrote a book about how women should overcome these limiting beliefs. And you draw a link with the seven sins that are very much part of uh, Christianity and uh, I think our our culture in North America today. So I want to know the inspiration for that book and... Was it, you know? Do you see a link between the process you went through and uh, what you what you ended up writing about and research for for yeah. this book?
1: So it's interesting, even thinking about this idea of imposter syndrome, which I've always sort of wondered about. And I mm-hmm. think for women, my theory, and I write about this a bit in the chapter on pride, is that it's not that we lack confidence or have so much in, in doubt. I think that it's more of a reflexive response to a culture that tells us that we should have doubt and that we are going to be fact-checked and policed and put back in our place. Mm-hmm. And so I think that so many of us, and it's why I, like, I get so mad when I see sort of often men saying like, be more confident, ask mm-hmm. for what you want, you know, negotiate, because I don't feel like I observe a lot of imposter syndrome so much as i observe women calculating mm-hmm. how they need to um represent themselves and get their needs met without invoking someone's reflexive need to put them back in their place or to remind them of all the things that they're not so i think it's mm-hmm. a really good question and something i ask myself all the time how much of this is self doubt versus me operating Mm -hmm. in our culture just on autopilot Mm -hmm. where I know you're not going to say, well, I I didn't know that you were a historian, at least you're not going to say that, but it's almost like I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop and for someone to say, let me check your credentials.
0: Because we've experienced it. And often, I I'm allergic to the term imposter syndrome. I use it because it's the concept we use to describe, you know, that notion. But I think it's really, we are, you know, operating in a system that wasn't built by us, for us, and we are used to facing the obstacles, the walls, the criticism, you know, the questioning. No wonder we have imposter syndrome. (laughs) Exactly.
1: So the book, as you mentioned, it's about these cultural ideas of what Mm -hmm. it is to be a good woman and it turns out that these ideas of what it means to be a good woman i would say a good woman is um selfless puts needs no rest puts others people's needs before her own wants has no longing desire appetite hunger has no real need for mm-hmm. affirmation or praise or recognition and never gets upset about mm-hmm. any of this mm-hmm. and she, she sounds perfect She sounds perfect. And I recognized in myself this like need to be good and to be recognized and validated as good and Mm -hmm. how Mm -hmm. scary it is as a woman when there's an assault on your goodness. When we say she's a bad person, she's a real Mm -hmm. B-I-T-C-H, she's a bad mother, she's mean, she's ambitious. I mean, we all know that she's selfish. You can cancel a woman Mm -hmm. on that. She's mm-hmm. not a perfect ally. We destroy them. We like send them away. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. men are conditioned and programmed for power. And as long they can do anything, they can be as terrible and reprehensible as they want. Absolutely. Cue Elon Musk. But as soon as Trump, as Trump. soon as yeah, as soon as they lose power, it's only mm-hmm. weakness. Mm-hmm. At which point we stop venerating and excusing their behavior. But mm-hmm. when we see them as powerful and rich, like forget it. We'll excuse anything. We'll excuse anything. But for women, it's this like idea of goodness. And it's mm-hmm. a cultural idea. It's not an absolute value. And we will do anything to protect and create this shield of goodness. And I recognize this instinct in myself. And that I would police myself according to these ideas and berate myself and then turn and police other women. Mm-hmm. And so I really the genesis of the book no pun intended, but I wanted to like know where it started and where, uh, patriarchy, which Mm -hmm. I also wanted to understand if that was a foregone conclusion or where that came from, but when did patriarchy become moral Mm -hmm. and when did it become, and why is it in the bodies of women? And I Mm -hmm. didn't grow up in a religious household and this book is not about religion per se. It's about culture and how contagious culture is and how we whispered into each other's ears, how it's a virus And so this isn't about, when I say the seven deadly sins, which are Mm -hmm. sloth, pride, envy, greed, gluttony, lust, anger, and I include sadness um, Mm -hmm. in terms of men, but it's not that you and I are saying like, that's sinful. It's sinful. So I believe in this and I abide by this. And this is like my code of ethics or morality. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. This is operating in us insidiously without our conscious awareness and without Mm -hmm. any permission granting, this Mm -hmm. is just what is corralling us. This is what we have this reflexive, like, Oh, I'm going to get that woman's going to be like, she's way, way too confident, Mm -hmm. way too big for her britches. Like I need Mm -hmm. to put Mm -hmm. her in her place or like, ah, that tone. Mm -hmm. Like, why are you so angry? Tone? I can't listen to you. You Mm -hmm. harpy shrew maniac, Mm -hmm. you know? that's what that is.
0: And we're we're never winning, right? Because if we are and 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 again I, I see this in the in the business world, a woman who is too confident, ambitious, driven, you know, a, a, a real leader, it, she'll be too much. She'll be called a bitch, she'll be called, you know, overly ambitious and a man who's acting the same way will be a celebrated leader. Um, but a woman who's too soft, who's, you know, applying empathy, who is emotional, will be called that. She's too emotional, not a good leader, can't do the job. We have nothing left.
1: Exactly. No. So this is, we understand the system because Mm -hmm. it runs us. Mm -hmm. And so I think so much of our behavior is a function of learning how to survive and and sometimes thrive in the system. And I Mm -hmm. think that what the result is for all of us is this Massive denial of self Mm -hmm. and all of our own wants and desires and ambitions. And then most markedly, I think because we perceive these feelings of envy and and Mm -hmm. greed and Mm -hmm. all of that as bad, we are suppressing it and repressing it and then projecting it onto each other and you know, I write a lot about envy, for example, and yes. this idea of wanting and how- um, I love
0: that part of the book. That was eye-opening. Jealousy yeah. is not necessarily bad.
1: <laughs> it's not necessarily bad. It's very human. Mm-hmm. You, It shows you what you want, yeah. that someone has something or is doing something that you want for yourself. But instead mm-hmm. of recognizing that, I think most of us just have this feeling of badness. Yeah. And this person's making me feel very bad and uncomfortable. And so instead of understanding that that's essential information, this woman is pushing on a dream you have for yourself she's showing you what you want wow powerful Mm -hmm. we say i we scarcity kicks in Mm -hmm. and we immediately look to deprecate her and it's like i don't like her she rubs me the wrong way who does she think she is Mm -hmm. why her and not me like we just can't wait for her to be put back in her place Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. Instead, and miss miss all of the information of our soul saying, no, pay attention. Do what she's mm-hmm. doing. Watch her. You don't mm-hmm. need to replace her. You don't need to dethrone her. You don't need to deprecate or deny her. You need to move in this direction.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And there is room for all of us. Actually, if more of us go, it expands. Mm-hmm. The world gets bigger. Exactly. Yeah.
0: And how do we you know, apart from reading your book and understanding the the systems that work a little better, how do we dismantle this? How can we make change happen? And it's probably, you know, in our daily practices and and, and everyone uh, kind of making small changes. But something that comes up for me when you talk about envy is, you know, that notion of women competing uh, with each other is, is often talked about. A, a lot of women see it at play, want to don't like it, you know, we want to be supportive of other women, but we've all seen environments where women kind of fall back into that competitive mindset that stems from scarcity. Um, How can we unhook that? How do we break agreements with these patterns?
1: Yeah. So, and that's why I think envy, and I knew it would be, I had to fight my editor because she had such a reflexive, like, I'm not that, I love women. I only work with women. Ah," You know, just like this (laughs) franticness, which I recognize because it's so unsavory, right? Mm -hmm. And... And then ultimately, like as she let the chapter in, she started to recognize it in herself and and mm-hmm. around her as sort mm-hmm. of one of our very subtle and insidious patterns. Mm-hmm. And this chapter, as I've talked about it with women, is very relieving because mm-hmm. they, they are it's it's it becomes very confessional and they're telling me, like, actually, like men in my life have been really supportive, and it's the women who mm-hmm. have been. You know, I expect more. It's just because I expect more from women, or whatever it is. But it's the it's the lack of solidarity from other women that they experience most acutely. But yet we're sort of both trained to sort of say it's them, it's the men, it's out there, yeah. And also to sort of paper over out of fear of losing more equity all of that bad feeling and just be like hashtag women, supporting women hashtag female empowerment. And then (laughs) when we just sort of try to move into the performance of solidarity, rather Mm -hmm. than attending to like, what are very tender wounds Mm -hmm. and a lot of, I think, guilt, anxiety, shame for all women when we have been too shitty to each other. Sorry. Mm -hmm. I hope it's okay that I said that word. Absolutely. Um, And so what needs to happen is to let that all come out and then for us to acknowledge that it's present mm-hmm. and sort of collectively move it and then watch ourselves and watch those feelings when you, when another woman is like, well, I want to have a podcast. And it's mm-hmm. like, what's happening in your body? Can you breathe through that? And then can you figure out how to help her support her and vice versa? Um And it's really what's what's also amazing is um, with this owning of wanting because I think so many of us there's no modeling for this we have so much shame about it we can't it took me 40 years to be able to even know what I wanted much Mm -hmm. less say it and much less do it
0: Mm -hmm.
1: is start the practice with each other and I just did this with a group of women earlier this week that was quite moving because. Mm -hmm. It's a group of women, they gather with some regularity, uh, maybe once or twice a year, I think they meet online, Um, Venn diagram of interests and worldview. And part of the process was for us to go take a few minutes and write down what we want, what we like really, really want. And it has to be, it had to, not for others, not like I want my children to get into the top two schools of their choice, Mm -hmm. but for yourself. For ourselves. And what is so, feels so shameful, embarrassing, prideful, like, you can barely admit it to yourself, much less, like, speak it out loud. Like, Mm -hmm. what's that? And a lot of women had trouble sort of actually getting there. They had to be pushed. Um, And then we went around the circle. And some people were crying. You could feel the um, anxiety in the room. You could Mm -hmm. feel the scarcity as we got started, this, like what if someone wants what I want? Like, uh, you know, just the anxiety was palpable. And then we all went around and there were two things. One, everything was entirely reasonable. Hmm. And, um, so it wasn't like, I want to be Beyonce. It was, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, like, I want to write whatever it was. Mm It was like completely inbound. I want to have success
0: in my own career or, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I
1: want to start a jewelry line that's like Mm -hmm. successful and yet responsibly sourced at every level Mm -hmm. of the supply chain. And I want to create a new paradigm for the jewelry industry in order to do this and like tell consumers. One example, I want to write a children's book about spirituality that like actually really sells well and supports me financially. So two examples and, but this is, they were all that divergent. Mm -hmm, There were a mm -hmm. few things that were like in the same lane, but like someone wanted to write a children's book about spirituality and someone wanted to write a book about regenerative agriculture. So like as the room starts expanding and these women are like speaking their wants into existence, it's Mm -hmm. like, wow, first of all, I want all of this to come true Mm -hmm. for, for our world There were Mm -hmm. a lot of beauty and what was expressed. And second of all, like, there is, we all want different things. And we're all, I mean, it gets into the chapter on pride. We're all uniquely gifted, Mm -hmm. uniquely abled. And like, I don't want the same, even though we might seem like we're in the same space, we want very different things, Mm -hmm. very different. Mm -hmm.
0: That's fascinating. And you've, I think you've described a women's circle. And I know as a result of your book, a lot of women are getting together, having circles. Uh, You had a conversation about this on your podcast recently as well. Uh, I think that's a a beautiful setting and a beautiful way for women to reflect together and, you know, be able to truly support each other. It also makes me think uh, we have a a mutual friend in in Jackie Leonardini, who is this Mm. wonderfully gifted energy healer who was on your podcast recently. And uh, she, your conversation with her was about fear. Um, And I think she would say, you know, when you operate out of love and not out of fear, this is when you're supporting yourself and you're supporting others. Um, So it's a different energy, right?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And she's been incredibly helpful with me in terms of, you know, in pride, for example, which women are scared of because, Mm -hmm. um, one, they don't want to elicit someone else's envy. So it's better to sort of operate in the shadows. Mm -hmm. Um, but two, we're, Mm -hmm. we're culturally, we destroy women who we think are too big for their britches or the tall poppy in the poppy field. Like all we do is sort of watch women rise until they get to a certain point and then we destroy them. Mm -hmm. and we can say it doesn't have anything to do with our lives they're famous or they're female founders or whatever they are but it does this is like a playbook it's Mm -hmm. in you it's in me of like do not dare to be seen because nothing good comes from that yeah and jackie has been instrumental in shifting that thinking and that that paradigm for me and saying on a spiritual level actually the opposite is true like the more light you can you hold shine. and yeah. the more you shine the mm-hmm. safer you are
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and within that sort of shining the light and bringing people into this experience it's like army might not be the right word but mm-hmm. there's like a co- you're you're bringing in a core of people
0: mm-hmm.
1: who are creating like more light even and more, more light protection.
0: exactly yes And I think it's so important for women because, again, we have so few role models. We have so few, you know, examples of women. I mean, there are more now, but when I started my career, you know, over 20 years ago, it was hard finding a woman who was a role model in business. Because if you read about successful business leaders, entrepreneurs, they were 98% male. Um, But again, women have been afraid to shine and to show their you know their pride their ambition and i think the more of these r- visible role models we have the more we're going to inspire others to follow that yeah. path
1: and you know to your to your the name of your podcast one of the things that i sort of hear a lot and that always gives me pause is sort of one people saying like well it used to be a matriarchy and it's like actually there's no real evidence of that. Like, yes, some matrilineal cultures, but there was never like a, a dominance-based oppressive hierarchical culture run by women. Right. And I don't want that. Mm -hmm. I want a culture of reconciliation and balance. Mm -hmm. And I, you see this in business too, where it's like, we'll just, we'll just have more women And yes, Mm -hmm. we need equity. I'm not suggesting Mm -hmm. that we don't need equity. We're so far from equity, yeah. But it's not enough to sort of sanitize traditional business structures and patriarchy with our femininity.
0: Yeah, just throw in some women and throw in some women
1: because we are perfectly capable. We all know this of being toxically masculine. Mm
0: -hmm. exactly. And
1: Mm what we we need is balance. We need Mm -hmm. men who have their full expression Mm -hmm. of their feminine coming up where they're in their care, nurturance, creativity at home and at Mm -hmm. the office. And we need women who are also embodying both. And Mm -hmm. so the answer is not, let's balance it just by genitalia. Mm
0: -hmm. It's
1: like a consciousness- a consciousness that needs to shift, and it's it needs to shift for men as well. They're also victims of patriarchy. They also that need the relief of being allowed to have their feelings, exactly. have their full expressive emotion. Be mm-hmm. weak. Mm-hmm. Be sad.
0: Mm-hmm. Talk about men's mental health. Recognize yeah. that you know there are there are things that men need to address. So every man should also be reading your book. It's not just yeah. for women.
1: No, I think men, I feel like it's 99% women, but I've heard Mm -hmm. from some men who have been maybe more moved by the book than women. I think men Mm -hmm. are scared to read it because Mm -hmm. they think it's going to be sort of like, men are the worst and get rid of the men. -men. Um, Anti-men. Anti-men. It's not. I'm married to a lovely man. I have two Mm -hmm. sons. I am not interested in destroying men. I'm interested in, I'm concerned. I'm more concerned Mm -hmm. about men in some ways than Mm -hmm. women. Um, but Mm -hmm. I think for men, you want to understand the psychology of women and how patriarchy, um, corrals us. I think it's very clarifying. Yeah. And also the final chapter in the book, which you probably haven't gotten to yet is about sadness, which Mm was the eighth thought was sadness. And then they, several centuries later, after they were first written down by this monk in the fourth century, they took it out. out. And Mm -hmm. so I write about sadness and this ability to feel our feelings and the way that we sever boys from their emotions and turn them into men.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I write a lot about the work of therapist, Terry real who works with men, but how incredibly wounding that is and how the primary symptom of that is toxic masculinity.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, that's a and conversation women, that's so important to have. Yes,
1: and women can With do men the same at the thing. table. Yeah, 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 exactly. Women are perfectly capable of just blunting their emotions as well. Um, mm. they sort of never cry at work, never, you know, all of that. That performance of their more masculine side is, in some mm. ways, the exact same thing. Mm.
0: In closing, and this is how I like to end these conversations. If you had to share two tips. To women and in this case, maybe women who are trying to, you know, break those take apart these self-limiting uh notions that are that are innate and 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 part of our part of our lives. Where do you suggest they start?
1: So part of it is like listening to those internal voices and just tuning in and recognizing that they're actually not you and that there's mm-hmm. so much, you're gonna hear a lot of moralizing. And it's important to start Interrupting. So, like it's the moralizing of like I was bad yesterday, like I ate the pizza. I need Mm, to be good today. It's the I took a nap. I took a nap. I can't sit here and watch TV. Like I need to go and do something. Like I'm lazy. It's that sort of talk that is that's the cultural cattle prod that's keeping us engaged in these patterns. And so part the first step is to, to actually hear the voice that inner critic and recognize like, this isn't me. And I don't want to talk to myself like this anymore. Um, And then, yeah, get together with some friends and circle the book, like workshop it together. And um, it's a framework really for Mm. starting to understand how this is, and we need each other's support. Like the work can go quite fast. I've seen it once you're like, oh, we can all, if we all push against this, it's hard to be the one deviant woman. Um, But if we Mm -hmm. all start recognizing this (laughs) and pushing it together, then I think culture Mm -hmm. starts to change quite rapidly. Mm,
0: Love that. Well, thank you so much for these insights. Thank you for sharing your journey with us. And thank you for your time. I'm so glad we spoke today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for this magnificent book.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: Thank you to TD Women and Enterprise for their support of The Brandis Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. Thank you for listening today. If you did enjoy the show, don't forget to leave a review and subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound Engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support Claire Miglionico.